Thanks for listening to the Grace Life Podcast, where we want to know God, love people, and reach our world. What if you knew that the promise of something greater, something that would surpass all of your expectations, existed? Would you dare believe it? What would you sacrifice for it? We're in a series titled Sand and Stars, a look into the life of Abraham and living a life of great faith. Be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel. There you can find all our video messages as well as exclusive content you can't find anywhere else. Now, let's get into this week's message. All right, who's excited to wrap up Sand and Stars today? You guys ready for this? Yeah. Yeah. Here you go. If you are a guest, we are on part six, our final part of a series we've been doing called Sand and Stars. And uh, it's studying the life of Abraham and what God did in his life. And it started with this. I'm just going to do a little review real quick. Started with the idea God has a good plan for your life. How many of you believe God has a good plan for your life? You are not a biological accident. You are not just one of a mass-produced human race, but you are uniquely created by God, and he's got something good he wants to do in you and through you in this world, in your lifetime. That's what he put you here for. Do you believe that? If you don't believe it, go get part one, because that's what it was. I'm not going to re-preach it right now. But then what we have been talking about the rest of the series is if God has a good plan for your life, what steps do we need to take to live that plan. So in part two, the first thing we talked about is if God has a good plan for your life, the enemy wants to keep you from it, it's gonna come with challenges. Part three, we talked about the best part of God's plan for us is salvation by grace. The best part of God's plan for us is that we can be forgiven and have eternal life with him. Come on, there, there is no better part of God's plan for us than eternity in heaven, right? And so the question was, how will people know that we belong to God? If we're one of God's children who are going to spend eternity with him, as people look at us today and in our lives, how will they know that we are one of his? Part four, uh, my good friend Heath Cadell came and talked to us about how the people in our lives will either hinder or help. They're either going to help you accomplish what God has for you, or they are going to hinder what God has for you. And so Deal with the people in your lives. You get rid of some, keep some, I don't know. There you go. Anyway, last week we talked about which voice will you listen to. We're surrounded by voices. You guys know that? All around us. You've got people, they've got things to say, tell you what you should have done, how you should have done it, when you should do it, all that kind of stuff. You've got circumstances, you've got God, you've got the enemy. And so if you want God's good plan for your life, you are absolutely going to have to choose which voice you're listening to. You're going to have to learn to filter God's voice out of all of that and make a choice what you're going to do. And that brings us today to part six, the final part, the final part of what you need to walk in God's plan for your life. That sounds like big and important, doesn't it? Yeah. Wow. That must be like a really big deal. Cool. We'll get to it in a minute. Hey, question for you. How many of you know I love chocolate? I decided to share my love of chocolate with you guys today. Who thinks that's a good idea? Ready? There you go. Look. Yeah. See, here's what y'all got to understand about me. Here's the reason I went to music school. Cause my aim and where things land, usually two totally different directions. You know, it's kind of like that famous quote in Bagger Vance, the safest place to be is right where I'm aiming. There you go. So here you go. Some chocolate for, y'all ready? Because I want anybody in the head. Y'all can't sue me now. Here you go. Y'all, y'all, all right, just, just for this rope. Maybe, but I'm pretty bad. So we'll see. There you go. We're going we're gonna to do some more of this here. Where do we not get to? You guys ready here? There you go. Way over there. Ready? Heads up. I don't know where it's going. I don't want to hit people. I, I think this part of the room over here I didn't get to, so... There y'all go. Sorry if I hit you in the head. Anyway, what I just shared with you was pretty decent chocolate. 
is what I have in my office most of the time if you come visit. In my drawer and my desk though, I have really good chocolate because there is such a thing as really good chocolate. First of all, if you say the word Hershey's to me, that's candy. And Tootsie Rolls don't even make that level. When somebody talks to me about a Tootsie Roll, I cast a demon out of them. Don't you even do that kind of stuff. Good chocolate, dark chocolate. And here's the thing about the world we live in today. It is so different. We can get good chocolate, good coffee, good anything we want. I mean, they're just amazing stores. All this stuff is all around us. And and if they don't have it, Amazon will drop it off on your front porch for you. I mean, it's just amazing. It's cool where we get to live. But hey, 25 years ago, you could not do this. 25 years ago, you did not have world-class chocolate everywhere. And you actually had to go to a store and there was Hershey's and that just wasn't good enough. I'm going to tell you the extent that I would go to. I'm going to tell you how far I have gone to get good chocolate in my life. 25 years ago, I was flying to Eastern Europe and I called the travel agent and I said, here's the deal. I will only use an airline that lands in Zurich and the layover in Zurich has to be long enough for me to go to my chocolatier. That's the rule for this airplane ticket. That's how far I will go for good chocolate, right? Come on. Is anybody with me in here that'll go to that? that I'm, y'all are godly people right here. The extent we'll go to for chocolate. That's what you'll do. How, how far will you go for something that's important to you? Y'all know where I'm going, don't you? So here's the question. How far will you go for God's good plan for your life? All the way. We're going to find out. Somebody says all the way. We're going to find out by the end of the day how far you will go. So if you've got your Bibles, you can turn with me. We're in Genesis chapter 21 today. If you don't, it's going to be right here on the screen beside me as people are turning. Let me go ahead and catch you up in the story with where we are. So as we said, Abraham, this guy named Abraham, he is our central figure. Abraham was 75 years old in Genesis chapter 12. That's where our story started. God came to him. At that point, he was just living a pretty normal, happy life. 75 years old, he had herds, he had sheep, he had servants, he had a tent because he was a wanderer, he was a nomadic person, and and his wife was barren, and apparently he had come to grips with the idea he was never going to have kids because there's there's no real complaint about what that was in his life. He, He was just good, and God shows up at 75 and says, Abraham, I've got a plan for you. You're actually going to have descendants as numerous as the sand and the stars. And I've got a land that I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you this promised land. Why don't you go walking and go explore the land? And so Abraham went and explored the land. And then there wasn't a lot. God goes quiet for a little bit. About 11 years or so later, God comes again. And Abraham's saying, hey, God, you know, I know that thing you said a while back, but I guess the descendants are going to be named through my servant. I've got this servant here. He's the head of my household. He's a really good guy. He takes care of me and everything. And I just guess that's how it's going to happen because that's all I've got. My wife is barren and nothing else has gone on. And God says, no, no, no. These descendants that are going to be as numerous as the sand and the stars, they're not going to come through this servant. They're going to come through a natural born son. And then God stops talking again. And Abraham thinks, natural born son, how can I make that happen? His wife has a great idea. Why don't you take my servant? Spoiler, that's exactly what he did. So he ends up with a natural born son. Now God shows up again. Now Abraham is 99 years old. 24 years have passed. And God shows up to say, not that son. No, 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 no. See, what I'm going to do, only I can do. I'm going to touch your wife. 
I'm going to do a supernatural miracle. I'm going to give you a child through a woman that can't have a child without my help. I'm going to do something amazing. And that's where your descendants are going to be named from. Yeah, you've got this kid over here, but your descendants will not be named through him. Anybody who says, I'm a child of Abraham, they're going to come through this other child that you're going to have, oh, another year from now. Seriously, God, I'm 99. What? We've been talking about this since I'm 75. Why we got to wait another year? Because I'm God. How many of y'all feel like that's how God does it when you're like, like, seriously, why? We got to wait again. And so here we are in the story, everybody. Abraham is 100 years old. The kid is finally being born. Genesis 21. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of the son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Woo! Finally, y'all, we've made it. Six weeks for us, 25 long years of waiting for Abraham. Let's go to lunch. Because I know a good chocolatier. Y'all want to go with me? We can't go to lunch. You think the promise is fulfilled. We've got Isaac. Everything is here. It's all done. But the problem actually wasn't ever to have Isaac. That, that wasn't the promise. If you think about it and you remember what God told him, the promise was that he would be the father of the multitudes, the father of the nations. And so here is Isaac. Isaac isn't the fulfillment of the promise. Isaac is the beginning he is just where everything starts. Now, this is interesting if you think about it and you think about how we, lives our we live our lives. God came to Abraham at 75 and said, you're going to do something you can't do. And, and so at that point, Abraham's like, oh, well, I guess I'm just going to trust God. Wait and see. And then somewhere along the way, Abraham says, well, maybe I can make this happen. So he, he goes with his wife's servant, Hagar, and, and he ends up with a kid. And God says, no, that's not what we're going to do. I'm going to give you a kid through Sarah. And so God has now given him a kid through Sarah. Here's what has happened. For 25 years, there has been this intangible promise, this idea, this dream for his life that's just out there. And only God can make that happen. And now suddenly, the intangible has become tangible. And he can reach out and touch it. And that also means he can reach out and take control of it. Now pay attention because this is where we come into the story today and need to understand. You see, God has a good plan for your life. And at some point, God will begin to reveal parts of that plan to you, meaning he will drop a dream into your heart. And then someday that dream will go from your heart to your hands. And when it gets in our hands as humans, things can go bad real fast. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Because we make it all about us and, and we take control of it. And sometimes what's in our hands becomes more important to us than the God who put it there. And so when that happens, God shows up to bring a test. If we look at everybody in scripture, God brings a test. If we look at all of our lives, God brings a test. If you are the only human who will never go through a test, God bless you. You can go to lunch. The rest of us, we are going to get tested when God finally takes the dream and it goes from being a dream to a reality. And when we can finally get control of it, God's going to come and say, now let's see what you're going to do with that. And so let's jump to chapter 22. After these things, God tested Abraham. 
and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac. Only son? I thought I had another one. His name was Ishmael. I got two sons. God, don't you remember? I do remember you've got another kid, but you've only got one son through which the sand and the stars are coming. You've only got one child of the promise. So take your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Excuse me. Come on, anybody with me here? That's one of those moments you read the Bible and you go, what? Like how? I thought God was a good God. I thought God was a loving God. Didn't God just say kill a kid? God just said kill a kid. That, that doesn't sound like the God we all worship on Sunday. Matter of fact, just try it next week. Hey, would you come to church with me on Sunday? I'm going to worship a God who says kill a kid. See who comes with you. We're all saying that doesn't sound like my God. Something's up. But here's what happens. We read stories like this and we get really confused about who God is. What is God like? What is his nature? And I can't tell you the number of people that I've met in my lifetime, especially as a pastor, who tell me that they can't worship the God of the Bible because of stories like this. They say, that God in the Bible, he, he says, sacrifice your child. And then all the other stories that they bring in. And, and they talk about all these different things. And say, that's why I'm, I'm agnostic or that's why I'm an atheist or that's why I just don't care and don't want to label anyway. But, but that God, I just can't worship. So let me try to bring some sense to this idea of why in the world would God ask this? Here's the deal. We've already talked throughout the series that Abraham knows only what God tells him. If we go back to the beginning, we had Adam and Eve. They had great fellowship with God. They could talk to God. They knew anything that God wanted them to know, but they blew it up. And so fellowship with God was broken. And it is now only 19 generations later, like 17 grand grandkids. You know what I'm saying? Like 19 generations later, it's only chapter 12 in Genesis. And God has had almost no interaction with mankind over those last few chapters and throughout those 19 generations. And so God has shown up and said, it is time. It is time for my creation, for my people to know who I am. So I'm going to have a people. I'm going to have a people on the earth. I'm going to bless them. I will be their God. They will be my people. And the rest of the world is going to learn who I am through them and through the experience that I have with them. And it's all going to start with this guy named Abraham. So Abraham knows nothing. Abraham did not grow up going to Sunday school singing, he's got the whole world in his hands. Abraham doesn't know if God's got the whole world in his hands or just part of it. He doesn't know anything because God hasn't told him. Abraham did not grow up with the Bible that he gets to read little stories at night. Abraham did not grow up with his dad thanking God for the food before every meal. The only thing Abraham knows is what God has revealed to him. And so far, God has not revealed to him everything you and I know about God. So spoiler alert, he's not going to kill the kid. Sorry if you didn't know that was coming, it's coming. We'll get to it in a minute. God's actually going to stop him beforehand. So in the end of the day, God is actually not telling him to kill the kid. What God is doing is testing Abraham in a way that Abraham understands. See, let me explain. Abraham lives in a world where virtually every other religion has an angry God, and you keep that God angry through child sacrifice. So when God says, you only got one kid and you couldn't even have him on your own, so I want you to take him and kill him to show that 
I'm that important to you. What God was asking of him was the most normal thing in Abraham's world. It was so normal, it would be like an angel telling you to go to church on Sunday morning in the Bible Belt. Didn't cross his mind once. God says, do this. Oh, that sucks. But that's what we do. Okay. He understood that God was asking him to show what was most important. He understood that this was a very serious thing, that this had grave consequences. But most of all, he simply understood. This was Abraham's world. God was relating to him in a way that he could. If God comes to you and me today and, and tests us, he will not ask us to sacrifice our children. If God comes to you, you think God comes to you and asks you to sacrifice your children, I'm here to tell you, that wasn't God. That was a demonic voice. That was the same voice that tells you to like milk chocolate instead of dark chocolate. It's a demonic <laughs> voice. Because when God comes to us to test us, he will come to test us with something that we understand that will fit with what we understand and know to be true about his nature. God will never tell you to do anything that does not line up with what he's already said to be true about himself. People come to me and say, well, I, I believe God's called me to do this. And I'll say, yeah, but what about? And they'll say, oh, well, I don't know. I just got to follow the spirit of God. I say, well, follow the spirit of God. He wrote it. When God tested Abraham, he wasn't actually going to have him kill a kid because it's very clear that's against God's nature. But Abraham didn't know that because God had not revealed that yet. So all Abraham knows is that he's got to show God who is most important. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. Wow. Just stop for a minute and see the picture. What I love about reading Scripture is seeing the themes of the things that God does all throughout Scripture from the beginning to the very end. As Isaac was about to be sacrificed, he had to take the very wood upon which he'd be sacrificed and put it on his back and carry it to his place of death. A perfect picture of how Jesus would carry the wood of his cross to which he would be nailed on his back to the place of his death so that you and I would not die. Isn't that amazing? The goodness of God. And then Abraham took in his hand the fire and the knife, and so they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. I don't know about you, but I think people in the Bible talk weird. Y'all know what I'm saying? I mean, like, that'd be like, dad, what? <laughs> anyway, he said, behold, <laughs> there you go again. Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. I've heard some people preach this, in my opinion, incorrectly, at the very best, poorly, because they've tried to use what Abraham just said to say, Abraham had faith that God would provide something. Abraham had faith that he wouldn't have to kill his son. Abraham had, had an idea God was going to do something else. The problem is that's not at all in Scripture. Nowhere is that supported by Scripture. Because look at what happens in the next sentence. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son. 
and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. No, no, no. The previous line about God providing wasn't because Abraham had any reason to hope things were going to turn out any differently. No, this was simply, Isaac, you're getting ready to go through the worst day of your life. We're not going to add any trauma to it. Just wait. That's really what's going on. Because see, if God is going to test Abraham, he has to test Abraham in a way that Abraham doesn't think God's just pretending. It's never a test if you think God's just pretending. And so that's why God asked him to give the most valuable thing in the most permanent way. Plus, Abraham has no reason to think God will change his mind. Because let's put ourselves where Abraham is. Again, Abraham is surrounded by false worship of false gods And never once has one of those imaginary gods come down from heaven and stopped a child's sacrifice and showed his power. Never. Abraham's got no reason to believe that this God is going to be any different. No, when he told Isaac that, it was because he just wanted to spare him what was about to happen. Or maybe he was just intelligent and figured he didn't want to drag him kicking and screaming the rest of the way. Who knows? But you can clearly see Abraham was prepared to kill his son. And as he held up the knife, standing over his son on the pile of wood, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. I mean, he's going to be blessed. He's going to have victory. And then your offspring shall all the nations, everybody else, everybody else's kids forever. All the nations of the earth will be blessed because you passed the test. Because you have obeyed my voice. You ever wonder? What if Abraham had just said, no, like, sorry, God, I don't think so. I mean, seriously, like you didn't, I didn't know you existed until 24 years ago. You came and said, hey, take a walk and we'll give you what you see. So I took a walk. I didn't hear from you again for a decade. Then you said, I'm going to have a son. I had a son. You didn't want that one. You wanted another one. Didn't hear from you again until I was 99 years old. And then you tell me I still got to wait another year to have a kid. I finally got a kid. I mean, I've only talked to you like three or four times and I, no, because I like him. And like we go fishing and we go hunting and he's my only son. So kill him, make you happy. I don't really understand you, don't know much about you, just know every now and then you show up and ask me to do really hard stuff. So I think I'm done with you. No. You ever realize the story could have gone that way? And then he would have had Isaac and he would have kept Isaac. If you don't know the future of the story, Isaac will grow up and marry a barren woman, which means 
it would have stopped where it started because Isaac was not going to be able to have children of his own. That too was going to take God continuing to prove his promise true. But because Abraham said, yes, yes, I will do what you've called me to do. Not only did he get to keep Isaac, but he got everything else that God had for him. And you and I today get to reap the greatest blessings because of that moment of Abraham's faithfulness. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba and Abraham lived at Beersheba. And this, ladies and gentlemen, is the end of Abraham's story for the most part. There's not much left as far as what he does. And the reason that this is kind of done is because he's passed the test. He's been faithful. He's believed God, was credited to him as righteousness. He's done everything God's ever told him to do. He's made a few mistakes when he wasn't sure what God was saying, but he's always trusted God. And he showed that nothing was more important to him than God. The rest of the story now will begin with Isaac and Isaac's son Jacob, and that's where we are. So why the test? Why does God test people? Well, as we've already said, because we're going to get control of it. Because we're going to get the thing that God has always promised us, the thing that God has always said, the thing that we've put our whole lives to chase and to pursue. And it's finally going to be within our reach. And God's going to bring a test to say what matters most. What matters most? This is that point where you're a 14-year-old kid and God gives you a dream of becoming an NBA superstar. And he says, you're going to grow up and you're going to be the greatest of the NBA. You're you're, you're going to be the guy. Everybody's going to wish they could be like you. Other NBA players are going to wish they could be like you just so that you can make me famous. But you're 14, you're pretty good, and you're 5'8". Good luck with that. And all you can do is trust God. You can practice. Practice helps, but practice will only get you to college. You're going to need some skill. You're going to need to be 6'11". You're going to need God to do something. And then he does. And you find yourself at like 19 years old, the number one lottery pick, and everybody's cheering for you. And you stand up and you get the jersey the day they call your name and you get tens of millions. And you go, yes, yes, the dream is true. I am famous. And we forgot the second half of the line that God was doing that so we can make him famous. And the question is, what has God promised you? What did God put into your heart? What did God offer you that finally, when you got it in your hands, you forgot about the God who gave it? And the question is, how far will you go? How far will you go to show that God is undeniably first in your life? Let's talk about the character in the story we have barely mentioned. Isaac. Have you ever read this story and wondered what was he thinking? I mean, young boy, adolescent, here he is enjoying life. I mean, he's like 13, 14, I believe. I just did the math right. Where was I? We're going to strike that because I'm doing bad math at the moment. But he's taking his kid. And it's all he's ever known. Best friend. He's the prince of the kingdom. Come on. He, he knows that, that half-brother thing over there. He, he, nobody likes you. My mama don't like your mama. You ain't going to be nothing. I'm the man. My daddy loves me. God's even told him I'm the man. So I've got, like, life is awesome. 
and you just live in that center of the world mentality. And then suddenly your daddy starts wrapping a rope around you. And then you can't move. Then he lays you on top of a stack of wood that's about to get set on fire. And he pulls out this big knife. He looks you in the eyes. What was he thinking? I'm going to tell you, there are only two ways this went down in Isaac's head. There were no counseling centers back then. There was no therapy that this boy needed. So way number one is he spent the rest of his life angry, bitter, and really, really messed up. Or he learned the most valuable lesson in what might be called the greatest parenting moment in human history. That sounds strange, doesn't it? I didn't say it was an American parenting philosophy by any stretch of the imagination. No, 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 that's not how we would do things. But what Abraham taught his son that day, God is first. You're my son, you're my only son. Everything I have is yours. Everything I'm supposed to have is coming through you. Nothing means as much to me as you, except God. God is undeniably first, and you need to know that. That's not a very common parenting lesson. It's not a very common life principle. It's not something that we really see in our world. But the other way that went is for Isaac to know God was undeniably first. And life goes good for people who make God undeniably first. And then Isaac might have grown up to say the same thing to his children. We don't know. Their family was a little dysfunctional, so we're not going to read too far into the rest of that family line. It's kind of a mess. We could do a lot of preaching on them. But that day, something very, very important happened. God tested Abraham, and Abraham showed Isaac and the rest of history that God was undeniably first. I have to be honest with you. I don't know how far I'd go. We'd all love to say, well, I'll do anything God says. That's because God hasn't asked you the hardest question yet, probably. When God told me I was going to do this for a living, I was like, good, awesome, I'm willing. So I already knew riches were not a part of it. I was willing to give that up. You know, the whole dream of having lots of money and beach houses in the Caribbean and whatever. No. Okay. Passed that test. Not really sure that was a test. Then God, I, I've never gotten to choose where I was going to live. I mean, I have lived in, in like, I don't even want to live in South Carolina. I had to live in North Carolina, lived in Eastern Europe. I lived in a communist country. I mean, I, all over the place. If it were up to me, there'd be Grace Life Caribbean. That's exactly where we'd be doing this. There's somebody out there that needs to get preached to that doesn't mind wearing flip-flops, white sand, blue water. Oh, it'd be amazing. Maybe a retirement project I feel coming on or something like that. But So I've, I've never gotten to live where I thought I'd live. There you go, God, I'm willing to give that. That's how far I'll go. I'll live anywhere you tell me to live. We built a house and sold it because God, we'll, we'll give that. That's how far we'll go. What if God did ask for one of my children? Now, clearly not in the way that he asked Abraham. But what if God asked it like this? Because this would be acceptable. What if God said, you know what, Jimmy, there's plenty of preachers in Columbia, so I want you to go to a, a country. I want you to take your family. 
what, wait a minute, God, what country? You know, I believe I heard you say, and you know it's not safe for American children on those streets there, especially ones who proclaim to love Jesus. I know. That's why I'm telling you to go. I want you to go. I want you to take your family. No, you probably all won't come home. I have to be honest and tell you, I don't know that I could say yes to that. The question for you is, how far will you go? I don't know what the test is for you because I don't know what is most valuable for you. I don't know what test you've already failed. The good news is you can keep coming back around and you get retest after retest. I don't know what God would want from you. Maybe God would say, why don't you make some serious changes to your life? Would you be willing to quit a job? I want to share a story with you that someone sent this testimony in just a couple of months ago as we were preaching on the Jesus series in the fall. She said, I had my daughter at 18 out of wedlock. Her father was abusive and three months after my daughter was born, my mother committed suicide. After my mom's death, the abuse with my daughter's father got worse and worse. He ended up putting a knife to my throat and that was the final straw. I told him to go, that I would rather lose everything than to be in that relationship for one more minute. And to get out of that, I did have to lose everything. We lost the apartment, my car blew up, I had no job, no family, and nowhere to go. So I started working as a dancer in a gentleman's club just to make ends meet. I knew that this wasn't God's first choice for me, but we needed a place to live and my daughter needed food and diapers. I had no high school diploma and minimum wage wouldn't cut it. A few years in, the money was promising. Things were so much better and my daughter was more than taken care of, but the thought of quitting terrified me. If I quit, how would we eat? I wasn't trusting God. I felt like I was the only person that could provide for my daughter. After all, God wasn't going to descend from heaven with a fistful of money for me, was he? The longer I stayed at the club, the worse the issue pressed on my heart. I kept making excuses to stay. I can remember leaving work almost every day and crying on the way home, screaming to God that I was sorry, but I couldn't get out, saying, please, Lord, understand. Then one day enough was enough. It's April 1st, 2015. I walked out, quit, just like that. I've never been back, and God has provided. I'm happy, my daughter's happy, I got married to a wonderful man, got my GED, and now in college, working for a paralegal degree, and we're trying for baby number two. Come on, how does that, that's. For so long, Satan clouded my judgment. Satan fed me lies, and I fell into his deception. God's truth wasn't shining through until I made the choice to act and obey. I would say, until she made the choice to pass the test. Maybe for you, God would ask, you'd make a confession. I'm gonna share a story with you we got just a couple of weeks ago during our marriage series. It said, my husband and I spent four and a half out of five years of marriage struggling with intimacy. Six months in, he stopped being intimate. We lost our connection and so many other deep-seated pains came from that. He had admittedly stopped seeing me in that way, but told me daily for years he didn't know why. I was angry, ashamed, broken, 
and full of self-doubt. I'd given birth to two sons, conceived only after fighting about the lack of intimacy and affection each time. Sunday, after the marriage and intimacy talk, he told me that his past addiction to pornography was actually not so past. That he stopped watching the day we met, but the faces of the women haunted him every time he laid with me. So he struggled silently over shame and regret. And he thought I would leave if he ever told me. But he told me. And admitting that unburdened five years of guilt, which I was drowning in. And the truth was the life preserver I was desperate to be thrown. How far will you go? Maybe God would say, change a budget. Maybe money's the most important thing to you. Would you write God's part first, not knowing if there's enough for everything else? Give up something else if you run out before giving up God? Would you end a relationship? Do you know how many people I talk to as a pastor who say, I know I shouldn't be with them, but, but what? How far will you go? Maybe if you're a soldier, you need to change your vocabulary. The funniest thing when I talk to soldiers, they're willing to do almost anything. But they say changing their vocabulary is the hardest thing. Four letter words are the way that you get people to do what you want on base. And they've become so natural to them, they really don't know how to talk any other way. But maybe most importantly, if they did, sure would stand out. Maybe they're just not sure they want to stand out. But if you remember, we're always marked by a promise. So if we're children of the promise, we're called to stand out. Teenagers, maybe for you, God's just got a time you've got to say no. I don't know what it is. I don't know when it'll be. I don't know what for. But God may just call you to say no because he's already said no. The question is, how far will you go to show God in the world, to show yourself that God is undeniably first? Because I'm willing to bet, as we close out this series, if you want God's good plan for you, there's going to be something that tries to become more valuable. There's going to be something that tries to get a special place in your heart. There's going to be something that could prevent you from the very thing that God put you here to do and to be. So I'd like to close by praying for us that as the angel told Abraham, because you have not withheld. So I'm going to pray that we'll be a people who will not withhold that whatever that is God's asking for, we'll give it. We'll give it. Can I pray with you guys? Lord God, we thank you that you are a good God who has good plans for us, who has blessings for us, who gives great mercy. God, we thank you that you want to pour out the greatest plan and purpose for our lives and blessings upon us. And so right now today, God, we say we don't want anything to stand in the way of that. 
We don't want the gift or the blessing or the promise to be more important to us than the one who gave it. God, right now, it is our prayer that we will not be people who withhold from you. But if you ask, it's yours. And so God, I pray right now for all of us in this room because we'd love to say we'll give anything, but it may not be an honest answer. So God, I pray right now that you will speak to every one of us and you will show us if there is something in our lives, something in our hearts that is standing between you and us, that is standing between us and your plan for our lives. If there is something that we have refused to let go of, pray right now you would speak it. You would show it to us. And then equally, you would tell us exactly what you want us to do with that. God, I thank you for your plan. We want to see that. If you just stand in an attitude of prayer, I want to talk to those of you that have yet to surrender your life to God. The truth is God's good plan only comes as we're following him. And the thing that some of us have withheld from him is surrendering our lives. It is giving him control. We've liked the idea that we're in control. We decide what we want to do. We don't think about what he says yes or no to. We do what we want. We are king in our kingdom. And God says, stop withholding your life. And it's time for us to make Jesus king and for us to live in his kingdom. If you've never done that, I'm not going to embarrass you or ask you to come down front, just right where you're seated. Just continue to pray. Say something like this to yourself and to God. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you died for me. And now I want to live for you. I thank you that you love me. I thank you that I'm forgiven. And I want to withhold nothing from you. My simple prayer here today is that you fill me with your spirit and give me a life of great meaning in your kingdom. Amen. Let's celebrate with those people, everybody. Amen. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. If you've made the decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. It's the best decision you'll ever make. If you've been impacted in any way, we'd love to hear about it. Head over to gracelife.church resources where you can share your story and find other tools for following Jesus. We hope you go out and make Jesus famous in your world.